You are our third interviewee here, uh, Doric Earl, who has a, a fascinating history that, that I'm sure that he'd love to tell us about, and including working for a long time in, in sort of the uh, IT corporations in various capacities, and decided to really reinvent himself and come down to Dallas and, and work to uh, get a PhD, which you'll, you'll talk to us about, I guess, and work to really help to do some very good grassroots work, uh, especially in underserved communities. So, Doric, thank you very much for, for coming and talking with us. My pleasure, Rick. It's really interesting to see how often we start crossing paths here in town. I think what the city has realized, finally, is that they have a big problem near the, sta- uh, the state fair or fair park, mm-hmm. the donut hole, and... Those of us who have reinvented ourselves after, in my case, 35 years in IT outsourcing, I once fired 10,000 people on a weekend. Wow. You want to take a shower or two and an adult beverage or two to get rid of that one. Right. Uh, So I pivoted. I got my PhD about three years before I got out of corporate America, um, about eight or nine years ago. And... I have been here for 32 years, but I always worked other places, other cities, had offices in Mexico City or England or Toronto. So while I raised my kids here, I never was really working in Dallas and looking at it. So when I took the package, I um, spent six months kind of running into people like you and other organizations that were doing good work in the city that I never saw before. And it turns out then I got uh, my little uh, nonprofit consulting practice going, and I helped several nonprofits kind of run better. One thing led to another. Um, we're now involved in this urban garden, urban agriculture thing, um, and I'm also a full-time visiting professor from SMU. So I pivoted 180 degrees. In fact, the fun thing is because of the academic environment, I'm actually writing a book that I'll use as a textbook for baby boomers or millennials who want to reinvent themselves for good for good which is the title so how do you pivot how do you make impact how do you engage the world and both ends of the spectrum it seems right now are facing that the you know the boomers the that funny word that they're saying now but the people who are 50 and older who are getting pushed to the side by corporations because they're either making too much money or they're perceived to be too old um they have a lot. We just are starting to figure it out. We're just figuring out what we're good at and what we like. Have a lot to contribute. Millennials that I teach are the same way. They're, they they weren't as driven as I was or my generation was to get the paycheck and get the you know car and two car, car garage and the boat and all that. They're more interested in coming out and more intentional about what they're doing, um, and they want to make impact. So this book is kind of a, a compendium of how how to. It's a 10 chapters kind of um, highlighting different kinds of people who have pivoted. For instance, one chapter is about a guy that had been in prison, two different guys who had been wrongly incarcerated and who Mm. came out and started doing good work. Or the first chapter is obviously about me pivoting, coming out of, you know, the bloody wars in 
<laughs> corporate America, and in, in some respects, re- repairing my soul, if you will, mm-hmm. from you know how how ruthless capitalism can be, and in the reason we have such a, in my opinion, big inequity gap or equity gap now is because of the our worship almost of capitalism now. So, what was the impetus for that change? Was there was there an aha, or was it a process? I think there was a. Two, two kind of twofold thing. One is I still had something to contribute. I learned a lot. Ran, you know, I the last place I left, I was running over two hundred million dollars book of business at thirty points in margin and a thousand people. So I could run big stuff, and um, I still had a lot to. I felt, you know, I feel good. I'm in good shape. I wanted to contribute. And the other was I didn't realize how this donut hole in Dallas, how two zip codes in Dallas are as poor as the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, mm. and that we have the first or second highest child poverty rate in the country, yet we have some of the highest, most wealthiest, uh, you know, biggest corporations, most concentrated wealth on the other end. So it seemed to me that maybe I could kind of jump into that arena and help particularly nonprofits run more efficiently or, or speak the language of corporate America where I just came out and help kind of be a liaison or a, a guide for those kinds of organizations. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah. You saw a need and you met it. You saw, you saw that you could help meet that need. Absolutely. And, and the, it's uh, understanding what's going on in your community is really important. Engaging in that community. For si- first six months, I was often the only white guy in, the, in these meetings and I didn't say anything. I just listened for the first six right. months. I could have gone in there and say, hi, I've got a degree in urban planning. I know what to do. You guys right. need... They would have thrown me out of my ear. But now I've been going back for six years, back and back and back and back and back, and showing up and being, doing what I say I'm going to do, even though it oftentimes takes a lot longer than <laughs> you expect. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that inten- intentionality and that... uh, perseverance going back. I mean, we've had a lot of things we didn't anticipate. We've had failures. We've had funding stopped. But we've also, I think, made incremental progress in in that part of town. And now with the state fair turning over there, the fair park running to Spectra and potentially doing something good for the community um, with the state fairgrounds when it's not in use for the fair, people are starting to notice what's going on. The, The risk is that will gentrify it without figuring out a way to grandfather the people that are there. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, those conversations when we have the community meetings every month or the uh, business association meetings, a lot of that's about, okay, you guys need to step up and say something right now what you want or you're going to get tsunamied by people coming in and buying up all the properties there. And that's, you know, one of the things that I wanted to say that I really respect about your approach is that you have been so much on the ground. And I think that it could be easy for somebody who um, has a PhD in the field and has been very, you know, financially successful and so forth to come in and really be the person who has all the, the answers. Um, but, you know, it's always important for us to have the, the humility, I think, to understand that we don't and that we need to, to focus on listening as much as possible. Um, I would be be interested because, as you know, our firm worked with an organization that you had worked with and made a lot of recommendations for 
the state fair and fair park and did a lot of outreach and so forth. Um, so there's been a new plan that's that's come out mm-hmm. for, for fair park. Uh, what are your thoughts? What's good about it? What could be better about it? I think the and just I should say it's it's preliminary at this point. Absolutely, and and I I have been in those meetings with the community when they have asked people what they think. Um, part of the problem is when you ask an underserved community or a community that's been disinvested, what do they want? They want the greatest thing in the world. They want Walmart. They want Disneyland because you don't tell them what's realistic. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is set the expectations around this is what we can do in a year. This is what we can do in three years. These are the kinds of things you should be thinking about. But the, the, I think the problem has been as they check the, the organization that's doing the uh, specter is trying to get the community involved, but they really don't know how. They're not used to this this disinvested of community. Usually they're not in that tough a place in town. So it's been really hard for them to understand, I think, and make that connection. And the community has not, no one's asked them their opinion in 50 years. So they don't know what to say either. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and th- those of us who are helping the community are kind of loath to make suggestions other than, you know, think bigger than this, but smaller than that without, you know, we don't want to influence their thinking about what they think is appropriate or not. So it's a kind of delicate balance. And I know the reaction has been kind of lukewarm because it has been, I would argue, somewhat underwhelming the first round. Um, I think they're afraid to think big. I think they also have had trouble raising money, too. They're supposed to have a lot more money in the nonprofit now than they do. So they may be realizing what those of us who work in that community is that it's a hard place to get support for to do things, and even as as uh, visible as the state fair and the and fair park fairgrounds. You know, one of the thoughts I think about a community outreach um, that that's true with all communities, I think, is is that, but can be especially true in this type of context, is that people who have specializations can ask people questions that are, are, are appropriate to specialized people. Um, so a lot of times these conversations come in where you're asking the community, you know, questions, for example, about zoning or about technical transportation questions and not backing up to, to maybe goals and aspirations um, in a way. Are you, are you seeing that with this plan? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I think you have to understand the language of the community. You have to understand what's been told to them, what's been promised previously. And I think your point's well taken. You don't want to come in and using, you know, we try to not use the jargon of our academia. We try not to use the jargon of planning. But to your point, understand in their, in the community's terms, what, what they're thinking, what their problems are, wh- where, what's the, the, the sy- systematic thing that keeps them in their uh, position of not, uh, you know, not a lot of opportunity. What's what's the problem, that, as you see it, and then try to synthesize something that's reasonable that they can understand and that might happen. That's the other thing we promise. You know, I can count. I think I counted when I did my dissertation. 186 plans that were done for that community. Right. In the last 50 years. Wow. Zero have been delivered on. Right. I mean, the last one was in 2013 for a place called Mill City, and it was like a 13 or $14 million plan to really upgrade the, the infrastructure to start with and then do some retrofitting of the buildings. Beautiful plan. Beautiful plan. No money. Right. 
So and I wonder how much the plan costs, by the way. <laughs> I, some of the plans I know for the neighborhood have cost two hundred thousand dollars. Absolutely. And, and I've I've said, man, give us give us two hundred k and let us do something positive because we could we could help to uh, to implement something. Uh, pretty amazing, as as I know you could as well for for that. Um, and and maybe I should back up for our for our listeners because this is a little bit of of shop talk. But of course, most of the people who are listening are likely to have little to no context on on Fair Park and on this South Dallas neighborhood. So maybe a little bit of of rewinding would make sense. And and this is an area we've done we've done some work in, but you've done quite a bit. So tell us about about the South Dallas neighborhood, which by the way is not is not just the southern part of the city, but is a is a specific name for a specific neighborhood that is is partly um, due east of downtown, actually. So tell us a little bit about the South Dallas neighborhood and this this large park that is at the heart of it that has a lot of, of disconnections from this this area that surrounds it. Yes. Okay, good. I will start with two things. One, um, the city of Dallas wrested the Texas State Fair away from Texas, away from the rest of the, the two big cities, San Antonio and Houston, in 1936. It became permanent here. Mm-hmm. Um, thus, the beautiful Art Deco buildings, some of the rarest Art Deco buildings in the country, still there, um, needing repair. And that's one of the reasons they turned the fair over to this management company. Um, so they got the fair in 1936. It was a, actually a very big deal. It had a lot of people come. As it progressed into the late 50s and early 60s, we started to get move, grow. Dallas started to grow from a small city with the advent of the superhighways into a much bigger city. And more people were coming to that state fair. And in the 60s, um, and I can't remember who did it, but some official uh, recognized the fact that the white fairgoers were afraid of the African-Americans in their shacks next to the state fair. So they, with eminent domain, bulldozed and took over about 200 acres of the community for the sole purpose of having the state fair away from, a buffer zone away from the the community. In that same time period, um, the the superhighways were opening up North Dallas, and so white flight was... um, Imminent. They everybody left from the core of the city and the southern part. It used to be a very heavily uh, Jewish area. There's still a big Jewish cemetery there. Um, they all landed in North Dallas, and those who could leave left, leaving you know people, old people, people with disabilities, or people who didn't have uh, resources to uh, relocate. Since the late '80s and '90s. There was a huge epidemic, crack epidemic, in that part of the town. And what the city did to, to deal with it, kind of the cycle of what happens when people get addicted to drugs, they don't function anymore, they don't work, they can't hold on to their house, so they lose their mortgage. And then, you know, squatters come into the house and it's a, it's a mess. So the city tore down thousands of houses in South Dallas. So the, if you go block by block in those two zip codes, 7521, and 215, you will see about anywhere from a quarter to a 40% of the blocks are vacant. So that's, so you have this essentially emptying out of South Dallas, which used to be a very nice, lovely place before it got bisected by the uh, uh, Interstate 30 and its spur 345. Um, 
and it's cut off from Deep Ellum, which is the kind of the entertainment mm -hmm. sector. It's really bifurcated by the superhighways, by more or less by design. They didn't really, the planners didn't care what they did to the African American communities because the, the the whites had already left to, and gone to North or West Dallas or East Dallas. It, and it's interesting. You 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 kind of made me think of something. You know, I always think that <clears throat> the. The issue that I have, uh, that I'm always least confident in my answers of being someone who's who's very immersed in the subject of urban planning and placemaking is, is gentrification. Um, and I have, you know, not a lot of easy answers, especially when you go into a neighborhood like this. Um, and I'm sure none of us can say that, you know, it's acceptable to have the conditions that it's in, but we can also say even just for the city to do its basic job, to do the things that would be expected anywhere else, um, you could have displacement. Um, but on the other hand, you have had displacement. This was a, an area, I think, that, depending on how you measure it, used to have 90,000 people. Now it has 20,000 people. And unlike in the other part of the spectrum, you don't have people saying, well, at least I get to sell my property and I get rich. It's kind of a, a situation where nobody wins. Um, so, you know, obviously this has to be on the top of everybody's agenda. We have this area that is the closest to the, the closest place probably to the core of Dallas, um, where we aren't seeing large scale gentrification. Um, how, what, how does your work, how is your work thinking of helping to, this is a big question, I know, how, how maybe, maybe an example or two of how you're thinking about how to have uh, revitalization while minimizing displacement. Yeah, so one of the terms we kick around a lot with the community when we discuss these things is self-gentrification, where you're not taken over by outsiders, but you figure out a way to work with the system, whether it's the city or <coughs> small local developers or neighborhood uh, associations that may buy up some of the blocks. Certainly you can work with the city of Dallas who owns a good you know, like 1,100 lots in that community. Oh, really? Okay. So you could get them to, you know, uh, be mindful about how they do it. You can also, and they've started this program, I think at the request of several of the nonprofits there, where they're giving loans to people to fix their houses so that they're gentrifying, they're upgrading their own environment with some help from the city. The, the tricky part is if the property values go up, and you are still living there and you're on a fixed income or you're, you have a problem with your income, they have to figure out their grandfathering. But there aren't that so many people that figuring out grandfathering on the, on the uh, property tax wouldn't be a big deal. So you think about one of the things that we did with one of my little LLCs is we bought somewhere between 25 and 30 lots at the tax sale and we're putting them strategically in blocks so that if a developer, outside developer came in, we could hold them off and get the community engaged to talk to the developer. So we were helping not, our, not only ourselves, but others kind of put what we call tank traps in the neighborhoods and in the blocks so that you had people, owners representing the community having property in that, in that neighborhood so that they would, the outsiders would be forced to talk to them. Mm -hmm. One of the other things you do is get the city to approve these kinds of things uh, any kind of large-scale development with their community involvement. So it really is on-the-ground engagement, we, and there's several nonprofits who know 
how to navigate that and kind of are, have been holding the city much more accountable than they used to be. You're someone who's, who's had entrepreneurial success, but you've really come in and done a lot of things or been part of a lot of things that we might call uh, micro-entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. um, ranging from as small as this, this Bertrand pop-up market in a place where, where there was really nothing and, and being very involved in that. Um, but on some some other you know slightly larger scales as well, I'd be interested in in uh, hearing what how that experience has been for you. Well, having traveled a lot as a kid and living all over the world, we saw a lot of the economic development starts with entrepreneurship. A lot of the little markets that you see in India or Bangladesh or Mexico, a lot of the little shops, what we call uh, makers spaces now, are, were very successful with very small. Uh, amounts of money. And I teach two or three different social entrepreneurship classes at SMU. And one of the things that I have discovered in my research that what kills a lot of entrepreneurs is that they get too much space when they start up. They get a whole you know, 5,000 square foot storefront and they have loans for about a year's worth of uh, operations and they don't make enough to keep the space. What they've done in Europe and India and other places is they've taken those storefronts and they've sliced it up into three or four or five spaces. And then they put these little teeny retail entrepreneurs or even online entrepreneurs sharing the space. It's much easier for them then to afford the overhead. And if you put some back-end support, a little bookkeeping, a little legal, maybe a little marketing, then you've now created, much like here, where you have this kind of co-working, but it's very small very small and the, the entrepreneur the, the need, need what they need to make is very small so that they can manage that in the beginning we came up with an idea called the hatchery is what we're trying to find some space where we would split it up and then <coughs> s- support these little entrepreneurs who are now maybe selling you know cakes or breads out of the kitchen or stuff to their friends or their artists or musicians and they really have a talent but they've never had a place that they could flourish in and they don't you know don't aren't ready to leave their full-time job or whatever they're doing necessarily so you want to have it something small that they can manage so it's it's a good term i like that micro entrepreneurship i'm gonna have to steal that i appreciate that oh i don't think i invented it but i'll take i'll take credit for it uh yeah because we're learning all the classes we talk about Eunice, who did the microfinancing 15 years ago at gamian bank in bangladesh that kind of micro idea where he took $27 $27 and spread it across 42 people and got them away from the loan sharks. That's kind of the idea what I'm talking about. Very small, very incremental, very intentional. Um, because the, it, particularly there's no big businesses going to move into South Dallas right now. There's lots of small little businesses that need help. The only way you create wealth in a community like that is to create entrepreneurs. And you have people who have been out of the system, a lot of people who have, been, uh, have come out of prison, a lot of people with not a lot of education. So that your entrepreneurship incubator is going to look a lot different than the DEC or some of these others who are dealing with college-educated, fairly well-heeled people. We're starting with people who may need some help understanding soft skills and you know, what it means to come to work on time and what does on time mean and how long does... A, the work day look like and how do I dress and how do I talk to my customers what's customer service like so those kinds of very fundamental early stage development is what many of these people need but haven't been don't know where to get it from or there isn't a place to get it from so that that's the kind of thing and I can bring my students down and they can help right. they're very interested even though it's SMU and you know people give 
roll their eyes a little bit when they think about SMU, they're really engaged. And I, at least my department, the, the corporate communication of public affairs, I get a lot of latitude to take. I just took five of them down to the farm to show them because they're going to help us with a, with a growing program, to a selling growing program. I think Christopher wants to, uh, to ask a question um, as well, but, but just one more thought before he does. Uh, you know, this, this term incrementalism is, is such a, a broad thing. And I think people, sometimes people such as myself who might have a, a master's degree in urban planning and have been involved in some, uh, some fun projects might like to think that we invented these types of ideas. And bless our hearts, we, we haven't. Um, <laughs> these are really based on these, these timeless principles that we're we're rediscovering in this United States 21st century context, but it's a lot of it is is how everybody around the world already functions, you know. Um, and you can go down by Jefferson Boulevard, which is a predominantly Mexican and Mexican American business district, and see a lot of these things that that sometimes maybe the hipsters think that they invented and, and that they haven't. So I think it's cool that that you're working incrementally in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I just I thought you brought up a lot of different things that tied tied some of the stuff together here where you talked about basically showcasing your business whenever you have a storefront. That's really important to these businesses. But as you mentioned, it's not a traditional way to have a very narrow uh, incremental business approach where you have to make this giant jump, this giant leap and all this overhead comes. And then you you very much importantly highlighted how this entrepreneurship helps build wealth. So you're building wealth through educating entrepreneurship, which that really helps prevent gentrification because you're building wealth in these communities and you're actually having creating practical steps towards making that happen, which is essentially that's what that's what you're talking about. Right. What I think incrementalism is like being sensible. You look at the environment. What what can it stand? What what can it afford, if you will? Or what does it need? And you do just that. You don't do more. You try not to do less, but you try to measure what you're doing, your capacity building or whatever it is. Size it to the environment, to the people, so that it, it, it turns out to have more of a likelihood positive outcome than, you know, you come in and give them too big a grant, they have too much money, they waste it all, and then they're worse off than they were before. We, we do that with training too. We go in there and train people, but we don't have any jobs for them to do. So you're almost, in, in some ways, it's worse to train people who get excited, who get their hopes up, and then there's no follow through. There's no way to get hired. So you, those kinds of things, when you're working with uh, a fractured community, you really have to think about what you're doing. And your, your good intentions might really turn out to be an ugly mess. And, you know, my forehead's a little black and blue <laughs> most of the time because I'm, ooh, oh, gee, shouldn't have done that. And luckily, like you all, where you've been in a space for a while, you have some credibility. So you get to stumble once in a while and get, pick yourself back up because people know what your, your intentions are, they, what your values are. But, yeah, it's, <laughs> it can be messy and time-consuming. I wanted to get your thoughts going back to a subject we were discussing before, but I wanted to, to give everyone some context, which is which is Fair Park and, and the new Fair Park uh, sort of draft plan that's being drafted right now. And I've heard it use the word underwhelming to, to describe it because it's not bad. Right. You, you don't look at it and say this is bad. You don't look at it and say there's there's the wrong ideas, but you do look at it and say it, it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of sizzle. One of one of the and I have kind of two two kind of related thoughts to it. Um, 
one of the, the thoughts that I have is that I don't see a whole lot of evidence yet that it's thinking past the footprint of, of Fair Park itself, right. um, whether that's the, the, the lowest hanging fruit, which is, is uh, not the most disinvested community you know, facing it, but it's certainly the, the most obvious opportunity, um, which is to improve the connections to the Expo Park neighborhood, which is this, this thriving commercial district that's right next to the Esplanade and these, these Art Deco buildings. Um, or thinking about, you know, for example, the, the community that's on and by MLK um, and sort of the, the connection to the lagoon area and things like that. Uh, then there's, there's other areas that we know really need some, some help and connectivity. I, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of that, and it strikes me that it would be a much stronger plan if, if that would be, happen. Um, the other thing I hope is that they make that, that there's some very specific conversations that happen that are that are very kind of fine grained, uh, such as, you know, how do we improve the crossing of MLK around, you know, along Robert B. Cullen Boulevard, which if you if you look at it, we did. I don't know if you remember this um, when we were doing the uh, the Fair Park, um, the sort of the future of Fair Park thing for Earth Day. Um, we were taking people on tours to, to actually go to the station and walk across there and imagine they were, and we said, you're an eight-year-old boy from the neighborhood. Right. And I said, what do you feel? And they're like, very unwelcome <laughs> to even think of walking in uh, here. Exactly. Um, you've sent a very, a very clear message, you know, which uh, I, I, I described as sort of a, a dog whistle. Uh, if you or I were going there, we'd be like, oh, there's just some gate and we can we can probably get through here and it's fine. But someone from the neighborhood might say, oh, this isn't my turf. My thoughts personally are that it would be stronger if the, if, if the plan focused more outside the neighborhood and that it will be stronger, assuming that it focuses on very fine-grained details. Do you agree with that? And do you think there's anything else that you would like to see for this to be as effective as possible? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that very much. One kind of sarcastic answer to your question is why it's kind of mediocre. Take that planning process and go to the richest part of Dallas, Highland Park. I guarantee you the outcome of that process and the plan would look radically different. Right. It would have a lot more sizzle in its stake. It's partly it's the community that they're doing it for isn't in a position to tell them to do a better job. But if they were doing this for, you know, Beverly Hills, that plan would be smoking. Right. So it's partly the audience that they're doing it for hasn't had anything nice done for them for years. Um, to your point about going into the neighborhood and, and being granular, it's going to affect the neighborhood anyway, whether they intentionally do it or not. But once something goes there, that gentrification is going to happen. People are going to the home, the business owners or landowners are going to do something with their land. And we're trying to intervene and tell the, the park people get a bigger plan, include the neighborhood, talk about safety and lights and streets and water and building, re, uh, gent, uh, what am I trying to say, renewal and cleanup, so that you are part of that conversation, not a cause of unplanned, you know, kind of wild speculation, which, will ha which is happening now. If you look at the prices of the lots, they've doubled in the last two years. Right. And there's, not, you know, there's nothing you know, improved about that environment. So they can either be part of what I would consider the problem, which is going to cause this speculation, or they can, to your point, 
look over the fence and look over the horizon and look at something really comprehensive, which includes, you know, those zip codes. And to me, and I think to anybody who has a, a, any notion of planning, you'd like to do that. It would make better sense to work with DART, the, you know, the transportation people, and work with the school systems, or work with the, the banks and the grocery stores that are there or not there, and be more responsible for the whole neighborhood. And I think you'd have a, a much better <coughs> response from the community if, you, if they felt like you were thinking that. You know, throwing up a basketball hoop and a picnic table and some grass, I mean, gee whiz, what does that say to the community that you're, you know, how much thought have you going in, you know, put into that plan? Is it because we are who we are and we don't ever get a decent plan? Or if we get a decent plan, nobody ever spends any money to right. implement it? So I think your point's well taken. They really need to get out of the fence and get, and we're trying and they're trying. I just don't think they're capable yet of doing that. I don't think they're, they've experienced this kind of community before. My impression is that it's, it's not a situation where the intent isn't more or less in the right place. It's, it's very easy to be, uh, you know, highly cynical of, of, uh, Fair Parks management from my perspective, but I also think probably if, if something, um, if, you know, if, if something win-win were developed, I think that, that it would probably be supported. One more, just one more thought that you brought to my head that I think is, is relevant to this neighborhood. And, and for people who might not know, uh, Highland Park is, is a neighborhood that is surrounded by uh, the city of Dallas on all but one side. It's, it's surrounded by another very affluent community on on a Forsyth University Park and it, so it's the it's one of the wealthiest communities in in the state of Texas probably Highland Park University Park might be might be one and two one of the things that strikes me when when driving through Highland Park is there's a lot of streets that are very slow it's not a very good place to drive through and the reason why is obvious to me it's that the people in this community knew that they that even if they inconvenience themselves by making their own roads slower to drive through, um, that they would have a safer community, a more prosperous community, um, and a better community, and that they would protect their property values if if they gave up some speed for the the quality of life that might come with with narrower streets. You look at this this South Dallas neighborhood, and one of the things that strikes me is that. You, you have these way oversized streets and unlike in Highland Park, you have a lot of people who have no, ha, you know, they don't have one car per adult generally, certainly. So at some point you have children walking, you have adults walking um, and these and these streets are, are grossly oversized. Um, and some people I've seen even kind of defended as, as an amenity for the community. But if it were, if for a wealthier community, uh, they would know that that you'd be better off maybe having a little bit less lanes, um, but having more more public safety and more more values. So. It's like building a pool for people who don't swim. I mean, there's having a fast six lane highway in a community. Right. The only reason they did that is so people who wanted to get through there in a hurry. Typically, the people who live not there, they want to get through there in a hurry. They didn't concern themselves with the people that were there because if you did you'd make it all public transportation because most people don't have a car and mobility is a huge problem but it takes me two and a half hours to go to a grocery store and back with my you know kids on my lap that's a disaster for a single parent so the, the mobility is clearly an issue 
something you brought up earlier that I think I just wanted to highlight on. You talk, it's kind of bridging this economic and racial bridge or this divide. And you had mentioned listening and consistency and perseverance. Just in your own experience, what are some things that other people can do to help bridge that divide that you're doing just in your experience of, of having and on working on building those bridges? Yeah, I think it's going in with the expectation that somehow people don't have opinions and don't have feelings about what's right or wrong in their community and, and you know, have given up. I think giving people a chance to tell their stories and kind of unburden themselves. A lot of the meetings I went to, when I asked people, there was always a 20 or 30 minute section in the beginning where people were you know, complaining about something or the city or something. Once they got it off their chest, A, they felt like you gave them uh, respect and listened to their story, but also that was a kind of cathartic to tell somebody else, an outsider. Everybody who lives in the neighborhood knows what you know, crappy things are going on. But if you come from the outside and you are uh, genuinely interested in trying to help, helping them unburden themselves with their story and then you know, figuring out what they might do to solve some of these problems is really, it, it's, a, it's a time consuming, but it, it's refreshing for both sides to do that kind of active listening intentionality. And a miracle occurred to me over a period of time, I stopped I'm a you know, middle-aged white guy. I stopped seeing color. I started seeing facial features and uh, other characteristics and voices and pretty and you know, those kinds of things. You start to become unaware of what we usually see when we have a different ethnic divides. And I, for me, it started to disappear because I was paying so much attention to the, what the person was saying and not superficial uh, uh, differences, other uh, income or race or whatever. And that's kind of, that little journey was a, a real epiphany for me to just, cause you can now look at people as people. This country has been so consumed about racial differences where the rest of the world's consumed about, uh, religious differences. And we, if we can get to a spot where that isn't the first thing you notice about somebody, that's, I think, encouraging. I, I have to say, I've heard Many people say some phrase said like I don't see color, and that's the first time I've ever believed them when when they've said that. I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, see you, know, you notice their color, obviously, but I mean, that, I don't have a visceral yeah. reaction anymore. Okay, I don't have an uncomfortability that I'm going to say something stupid because I'm not from the neighborhood and I don't know necessarily what to say. I feel like you're a person like every other person that I hang out with. Sure, I don't notice the difference. I notice tall people too. Right. I notice fat people and short people and, you know, whatever. But the first thing I see about somebody isn't necessarily that anymore. And that's the difference. I mean, you know, we're all different. But I don't focus on that and don't have, you know, kind of the white guy's anxiety about whether I'm saying the right thing or whatever. I, I'm, I've gotten past that. I've gotten to the human, understanding the human stage. So yeah, nobody's colorblind. Right. I mean, I didn't take it that I didn't take it that that literally. But sometimes when I hear someone say that, I think it's it's, no. it's disingenuous. But I well, think and it, you're gonna have people in that community who are scary as shit. Pardon my French. Right. Too. And they're scary people, but they're scary people in all communities. And right. you know, there's there's bad things happen to people everywhere. So making assumptions. That, I guess that's it. Is I've lost all my assumptions. I remember going down there for the first time, getting lost by Lincoln High School which is down at the end of Malcolm X. And I thought, oh my God, I've made a terrible mistake. It was broad daylight. I thought, this reminds me of Beirut. I'm kind of scared. 
Now I go there and it's completely different. It's what everybody experiences when the first time you see something and then something you go back to over and over, how different it seems to you after a while. And that was a funny kind of event too, where I never had any issue there or day or night. And now, you know, you just think of it as a regular place like anywhere else. It's interesting to me the the level of just ridiculous stereotype that sometimes people have of some high poverty communities of color that that may indeed have high statistical crime rates um, if you look at the numbers, but that that people think um, I think some very very exaggerated things about how dangerous it is, especially for for random crime. You know, I think about. Um, we, we went over to uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, um, which has one of the highest homicide rates in, in the United States. And I was, uh, we were working on, on uh, part of the comprehensive plan over there. Um, and I'm with uh, uh, Sean Owens, who is a, a retired Dallas police officer and had been a beat cop in, in the Cedars when it was very rough there. Um, and this guy's expecting us to come into to Beirut. He's expecting it to be a war zone. People are saying, you know, don't go at night to to Crime Bluff, you know, the, what, what they called Pine Bluff. So we have these these stereotypes, and we ask the chief of police, where do you get the most calls? What is so we're we're going over, and this is like this is the scariest intersection in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which is one of the most dangerous communities in, in the United States, and you know we won't get out of our vehicle, and we're driving around, and we're just looking, and it's it seems very calm and actually kind of nice here mm. um so i think that you know we don't want to be pollyannish i mean uh, south dallas has a high crime rate but but the idea that you know someone should be so afraid that they can't walk around there without without getting shot is is preposterous and it's kind of the the well, a lot of the crime is people who know each other it's not right people uh, strangers aren't killing are getting killed there it's people who know each other and when you put people in a pressure cooker who are uh, economically challenged opportunistically challenged and feel like they are trapped that's how we all behave and, and then if you make it easy to get a weapon like we have in this country it's easier to get a weapon than a car um, you you're bound to have stuff erupt but it has nothing to do with white and black relations or anything like that it's a it's a community issue where the community needs more opportunity more outlets for their children and more stuff to do and nicer places to walk and you know decent street lights they know that too i mean it, it so yeah i agree with you that stereotype is ridiculous and usually these violent places is where everybody knows who's who and they're fighting with each other over some crumbs that we've given them and you know that we've set them up to you know not realize that you can make the pie bigger that's only one slice and you guys got to fight over it too bad it's, uh, another thing that i preach is that when you collaborate you can create a much bigger pie there's a, i mean like we said this place is a very wealthy city there's lots of ways to engage people to do to help if you know where and if you are cooperating in your environment so I think that's another thing. We historically set the community leaders against each other and let them fight over crumbs, and we go ahead and do whatever we want in the development side in North Dallas and West Dallas and leave South Dallas to its own devices. 
Yeah, you mentioned like human. I can't remember which book it was that I read, but it talked about, and I had a mentor who mentioned it to me, and he said human potential is always deeper than we can imagine. And that's very much what you're saying with collaboration because you can't really put uh, a number on it or a peak on it because you never really know what someone can is really capable of doing it for good and in a, in a positive manner, especially for their community that they care about. Absolutely. And, and when you think about it, the people that are employed are hustling already. They're already entrepreneurs They may be working two and three jobs because they're getting, you know, not less than a living wage. So they all are hustling already. It's they have energy. They're smart. They're talented. They may lack the, the traditional formal education or whatever, but the, to survive there and thrive, you have to have something going for you. You've got to have some talent. You've got to have some hustle, some moxie. And that's the part I really like about the community. You give them an opportunity, and they'll run with it. It seems that the a lot of times when I've had, you know, when we've had conversations with this community and I've had some, some similar experiences in other places, um, they don't recognize anything that's, and I'm, I'm speaking very broadly, but a lot of times you have people who don't recognize things that are assets as being, as being assets. Um, you know, we talk about vibrant neighborhoods, um, you know, where people are out and about and where you have activities at, at day and night. Um, and in places like South Dallas, I think that that's always stigmatized um, because you do have crime and you have issues and people who may be loitering and maybe up to no good. Mm. Um, but you don't say, you know, if if those things were addressed, this would actually be a great asset. Like you have a community where people are are watching out for each other in, in a lot of ways and where people are, um, you know, you may have a way to support businesses because people are walking and, and out and about and things like that. Similarly, um, a lot of times when I was talking to people about, you know, what is this existing um, architectural character of this neighborhood and, and how is this, how can this be preserved and how is this an asset? Um, I found that that didn't necessarily resonate. It was in some cases I talked to people who it was kind of like, we just, you know, there's nothing good here. We need to start over and, and, and build something. You've had a lot more experience with this neighborhood. Am I, am I exaggerating this? No, this not really. the, one of the issues is that when, particularly when the city tore down so much of the neighborhoods, the, you couldn't trace a block by block. I mean, only fair, uh, South Fair is one street, and Park Park Row was two old Jewish neighborhood or streets actually in South Dallas that have maintained their character and that are that are attracting a middle class. Certainly. Right, and it looks a lot like the other avenue in our city, Swiss Avenue, in the sense that these are old, nice old mansion-sized houses. Right. That neighborhood didn't get torn down, but if you go blocks in either direction, you've got 40 or 50 percent of the, the, the neighborhood is torn down. So there isn't any architectural continuity or contiguity. Right. There, nothing's contiguous, so it's really hard to see what's there. The only real thing left is the, the Art Deco in, in the State Fair area itself, which you could leverage. And there's a couple of old theaters, but again, these are kind of islands of architecture that have been surrounded by vacant lots so that that really don't you can't see in your mind's eye unless you're an architect what what's there but i would even say in 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 my perspective that there's a, a vernacular architecture to the neighborhood that is not necessarily spectacular but that that lends a character to it um that that you know to me could be thought of and, and respected but i think that that's not 
Um, that's not a very common, um, you know, perception, I think. You know, it also strikes me that MLK Boulevard, which, of course, is, is one of the, the places that's leading into this, and that was, you know, traditionally um, a commercial, sort of a commercial corridor of Dallas's black community, um, and a cultural one in many ways, that it doesn't, it doesn't have that cohesion. I think that to do that, um, and again, you're, you're parallel to these two very good residential streets, and I think that would be, that's something that's getting attention, but we'll have to see whether it gets yeah, the again, level of detail that it, that it needs. I mean, I think that's a great point, but you have to kind of work Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. If I'm hungry, and my kids aren't doing well in school because the schools stink, and right. I'm having these fundamental issues with survival, I really don't give a rat's rip about the architecture in my community. I'm just trying to stay alive. So we've got to get the community stabilized. We've got to stop hemorrhaging people and find some economic wealth-building strategies, and then we can go in and say, here are some of the assets you probably didn't even notice because you're fighting for your life with your $10 an hour job. So I think that's the other thing we've got to think about when we say people don't understand their assets. They, they may know, but they may not be any, any use to them at this moment because they got bigger problems. Right. So yeah, you've got to have some sensitivity to that notion that you know, maybe they do know, but at this point that doesn't do them any good, doesn't put food to the table or pay the light bill. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's, it's easy to... Um, to come in as, as, as an outsider and maybe see this as being something that, um, you know, because I, I think that I, I, I see this as, as something that can be a source of, of community pride um, and maybe, um, maybe not as, as, uh, as, as high up on Maslow's hierarchy as it might seem. Um, to have something that can be a source of, of a cohesive community, it, it, it seems like maybe it, it can be things like a sense of place are maybe not as, should not necessarily have to be as, as elite as maybe we've made it in this, well, there in this society. Is, though, there is tribalism in the sense that the, there are neighborhood associations, you know, block by block. There is some identity because one of the things you can't take away economic, you know, with all the other things, indignities we've done to these communities, one thing you can't take away is their own self-identification with the neighborhood or their community, kind of their own ultimate pride, their own respect for their community. So lots of the communities, like the Bertrand neighborhood and the Fraser neighborhood and Mill City, those communities, while they are, could need more investment, they have recognized at least some identity about their neighborhood, and we've gradually seen them get better and more engaged. The, the, the first thing when you have a community that's underinvested is it's isolated. People are just struggling to stay alive and they really don't interact, to your point. They don't go out, they don't walk around their neighborhood because they don't have time in some respects, but other way, uh, reasons there isn't anything in, to walk around to. So this is kind of a chicken or egg thing. Which, which do you do? Do you identify that, get them to identify their assets or do you show them some ways to capitalize on the assets will then, which will then change their, their uh, socioeconomic trajectory as well. So I think that's your kind of your area and specialty is to kind of figure out, yeah, I see these as assets. How do I convince the community or the city or everybody together to figure out how to leverage these assets to make, to make that change? And it's, and I think that even as, as uh, you know, 
as our firm has worked in some places that are very disinvested and, and we'd be, you know, we're, I, I see a lot of the things we're doing as being potentially useful even for, you know, places in the global south that, that might really have uh, a concentrated poverty that isn't, that isn't imaginable in the, in the United States. But I think having, having a lot of humility about Maslow's hierarchy is, is, is important um, with that, certainly. Um, well, so, yeah. one thing, though, I would add, though, having that conversation and bringing it up, maybe it's never been had before. Right. So it's unfamiliar to them. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying if you get a weird reaction, sometimes it's because of they're preoccupied with survival, but it may be they did, nobody ever bothered to ask them right. or share that. So I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing. And to have someone say, you've actually, there is nice things here. There are assets in your community. We just haven't capitalized on them yet. That's, that can change people's mind too. So maybe having the conversation, it, it can't hurt. Let's put it that way. And maybe it sparks some, <coughs> some, conversation, some realization, some mobilization that people didn't even think about. They didn't even know. They didn't know what they didn't know. You know, we're going to be interviewing Maria Bocalandro uh, and her uh, her husband, Danielle. She's with Dallas Community Colleges and, and it does sustainability-related work. But one of the things she did, she was actually a consultant in, in uh, Venezuela and worked for a lot of these villages. And one of the things that she did successfully was worked with them to to find economic value in things that were cultural assets that they didn't even really identify as having that value. So things like the way that they were doing massages or or certain types of dances or even certain types of oils that they had that that they could monetize in a way that celebrated their culture rather than kind of making it a, a generic thing for tourists or things like that. So I think it is important to say, what are your assets and how can you um, perhaps look at ways that these can be economic assets, but that they're also cultural assets, that they're enhancing your local culture and a source of pride rather than, than selling your culture out or, or monetizing, you know, you're, you're monetizing it, but, but you know what I mean, that, that well, it's still you, a you, balance. You right, know? you make the effort to recognize that it's value culturally as well as economically. You don't just, to your point, you don't just sell, you know, pretty painted sculptures, you recognize where these came from and the trees that they were on and how you learned, and this was passed down from grandfather to grandson and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And I guess, I guess maybe one of the things I feel is um, that that gentrification is not only um, an economic phenomenon, but it's also a cultural phenomenon too. You know, so I think that Maybe I see it as as a bad message for, um, you know, maybe a planner's, and I don't think this is normally done consciously, but I think sometimes planners can come in and it's like, well, we're not, you know, we don't have to worry about all that, that, that kind of cultural stuff you have. We just need to make sure that you're, uh, you know, maybe have some of, some of the basics, but um, that not seeing these cultural things as having as much value. And if you look in, um, you know, for example, the history of a lot of these, um, you know, communities of color and, you know, predominantly African-American areas and so forth. These were, even when there was a lot of poverty, these were very culturally rich areas. And in many cases, you see that in more recent times. You look at a lot of 
um, you know, things in the Bronx or in, in Detroit and the, the musical cultures and, and so forth. And that's, that's still a thing. So I, st- I think that that needs to be part of the conversation going forward. I was thinking about your uh, sticker there, and I wanted to co- make a comment on Dallas. Oh. Dallas percentage in voting and how much it frustrates me, and and just yes. let, let you have a platform to say how do we get it up above five percent? Right, because it's insane that it's so low. It really frustrates me, and I don't, I I don't know why. I don't know why on so many levels, and I, don't, I you know, right. We have uh, second world countries in the in the old Iron Curtain. That's ninety percent, ninety nine percent where their populations all wow. vote. And we're here, and we have the, the you know, highest standard of living in the world, yet we're, I don't get it either. Either Are we lazy, or are we just too much of an you know, individualist, my vote doesn't count? I, you know, I don't know what it is either, but it should be everybody's civic passion that the reason you get to do whatever you get to do is because you've, we've voted. Yeah. Especially in local elections. And the, the local elections, we can be so much more connected to it, but, but we, we don't. I mean, I think of the fact that you can actually meet your council people more easily than you might think in Dallas or stumble into them if you're pretty active. Uh, absolutely. And so many people don't. It's, a, it's a, one of our really embarrassing statistics about our country. So you work, you work obviously, and, and have done a lot of work in an area that has a, a particularly low... Uh, voting rate in these zip codes. Um, what do you think? Is there? Do you have thoughts on what could be done to we, improve that? Uh, they have been focusing recently. I would <laughs> be interested to see because there has been a push. The the nonprofits that have had been doing kind of individual things, training people or focusing on one service area, have recognized that really, in local elections, particularly to your point, um, we really need to get the community out to vote. And I think the last district election where they actually elected a, a Hispanic male, white, whitish Hispanic male to run an all-black district in District 7 was because they got a lot more voting than they had in the past. So there is some trending that people are recognizing that you can make a difference, you can do it, but it's, we're still far from perfection. But, I mean, 200 votes in that community can change a whole election. That's, That's amazing. Right. Which is, yeah, that's crazy. That's one, f- one person tells all their friends. Right, exactly. One family or somebody goes out and gives everybody $5 to go vote for me. Mm-hmm. Boom, you know, a couple thousand bucks and you got the election. And then in Dallas, a, a city council person has a lot of power. Right. Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, a lot of ac- access to money and all the other things. So, yeah, it's crazy. You know, one of the things I, I just uh, reread your uh, PhD dissertation that you did back in, in 2013. By the way, very readable for a PhD dissertation. Well, um, that, that was the my idea. Yeah, was that you could it would be used as a guide some someday. I mean, it's it's readable. Period. Um, for a PhD dissertation that's normally a low bar and it's not normally meant to be read by anybody, but. But your analysis, your, your uh, evaluation of the Forward Dallas Comprehensive Plan, um, and you wrote this in, in 2013, but it was, um, it was the, the plan that came out in 2006, if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, I found several things that were interested, interesting in it, and actually one of the things that we talked about in our, the first podcast that we recommended, we were talking to uh, Cindy Shepard, who is a councilwoman, um, and, and Hearst, uh, which is uh, kind of what we call mid-cities. It's, it's um, kind of 
yeah, in the middle of just a little bit north, but basically in the middle of Dallas and and Fort Worth. Um, one of the things that we were talking about was the way that city members are allocated, whether it's at large or by district. And in this case, I was talking about one of the unintended consequences or or at least negative consequences from my perspective, um, uh, which is that, you know, sometimes the 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 core urban um, districts are underrepresented compared to their importance in, in the city. So you can have, you know, outsides influenced by kind of fringe, um, you know, uh, council members and so forth. Um, but you talked a little bit about how this used to be mostly in that large system and why it became a district system and, and maybe what some of the uh, the positive consequences were for what, what has been an increasingly diverse city over the last several decades. Um, can you talk a little about that, maybe? Yeah. So when I would, started my research and what, what eventually occurred to me that Dallas is a pretty young city. It was pretty, um, what's the right word, politically immature. So part of that growing up period was that we moved from having at-large seats where you could have white guys uh, running the districts of African Americans and live in North Dallas. They didn't have to live where they um, were representing. And, they, you know, that kind of distance and that kind of isolation or that kind of misrepresentation finally got taken to court. And they had a couple of runs at it, and they finally made the, the law that every district, you had to live in the district that you were representing. The original uh, at-large is part of the white flight again. All, you know, the white wealthy communities all moved to north of the <coughs> downtown core, but they still wanted to run the city. So as long as you don't have to live in those awful <laughs> districts or live downtown, I mean, downtown really wasn't lived in. No, right. It was a it was a shopping center and a tourist attraction, and that was about it. And then the other areas, except Oak Cliff, a long time ago, which was a very nice city. Um, most people left the city and went north, and they wanted to run the run the city from where they were living. And the federal court uh, said, "No, we have to change it." So they changed it. So it was now went from an all-white city council to now it, it is much more reflective of the communities that they're representing, which makes <laughs> makes governance a little harder. Right. In the old days, the the business community just told the mayors what to do. And the mayors did it. And then the development community, the rich developers, basically called all the shots. Now they have to contend with um, people from the community who aren't necessarily interested in doing it the, the old ways. They want to be represented. They want to have their voice. So I think it's a, a, an improvement. And I think in the long run, it will help Dallas to be much more cosmopolitan and a lot less parochial. And from, from my perspective, it seems that Roughly, roughly speaking, and and the, it it doesn't always line up perfectly like this, um, but there's there's almost sort of uh, three different factions: one in the predominantly African American parts of of Southern Dallas, one that's closer to the core, that's a little bit more of of an urban faction, and one that's a little bit of a more northern ish. Uh, suburban faction in the city, so it seems like there's kind of uh, three alliances that that have that, the the um, the more urban one was definitely in the sense of urban core was definitely weakened in the last election. But it seems to me that that's a lot of the dynamic is there's uh, 
there's some maybe racial coalitions in some way in our council, but there's always also kind of a an urban suburban coalition using, yeah. uh, you know, it, within the city limits, but still a little bit more suburban lifestyle, as you might say. Yeah, and you and you can hear, and I think your alignment's right. Those kind of three factions, you can hear what they're what's wrong in their communities by what they're worried about. The urban core and the southern ones are worried about things like school systems and potholes and lights and crime on the northern ones worried about whether they're getting parking right for their new businesses or whether you know their complexes are growing properly or not so the the contrast between what the issues are on the council people in the northern and wealthier sectors versus what's on the 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 agenda for the people from the southern disinvested are quite different and that kind of the one in the middle that urban core kind of negotiates back and forth between those two coalitions to kind of get things done when they do get done. I, you know, I remember when the, when the Trinity toll road was being debated and Doric is, is rightfully rolling his eyes on, on this. Um, this is a, essentially um, what, what I think most of, uh, most of the people that I know would see as, as not a particularly needed um, highway that was going to go right along our, 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 uh, Trinity, uh, I don't want to say river because it's not much of a river, but the river, uh, river Basin, corridor. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, there was there was one person who was a, a council member from far north Dallas um, who was talking about it. And he was saying, you know, if, if I didn't um, if I didn't care about, you know, the this southern Dallas neighborhoods as being part of the city, I would I would not want it, you know, but they can we have these beautiful highways and I want them to have it, too. And I remember thinking, my goodness, like I don't question his sincerity. I, you know, like listening to him, I really don't. I think he was like, you know, we get all of these these highways and, and you know, we'd like it, it was a. Uh, it was clear to me that it was an equity issue for him that that you know you'd have just as many highways in the south um and not seeing that maybe you had a lot of people who didn't have um motor vehicles or who had other issues that that were were more pressing and were a better use of resources in these parts of the city um i just i just saw his passion and i might have been cynical before but i was like at least i don't i don't question his intentions but i i just think it doesn't show a great a great understanding of 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 this part of the city um and i i i think both christopher and i might want to go go back to the the forward dallas thing because we saw uh, some some interesting frameworks um but another thing that i i didn't know that you had done that you had been so involved with um, until we kind of did some um, a little bit of preparation for this conversation, is is urban agriculture, um, which is a, a subject that I think is is very important to 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 get right and important to get a lot of details right on. So I, I'm wondering if you'd like to talk to us a little bit about that work that you're doing. Yeah. So I did grow up in upstate New York on a 200 acre. Nature Conservancy. My father worked for Syracuse University in the the state of New York's forestry college. So I had a lot of a lot of stuff growing up in the in the country and traveled all over the place. But this one was kind of an accident. So I have affinity for outdoors and camping and things like that. I've always been outside person. This opportunity, when you look at the map of South Dallas and you look how much open space there is, we've got people who can work. We've got plenty of open space. 
We have a city that if they shut the border with Mexico down, we will run out of fresh fruits and vegetables in 14 days. Hmm. We don't grow any fruits and vegetables of a, on a commercial scale in Texas. We get it either from California <coughs> or Mexico, and we trade oil and soybeans and cotton to Mexico for the produce that they send here. So at a system, systemic level, North Texas is vulnerable. Now we've got the coronavirus flying around, might shut down the border. So if you think of it systematically, that from a professional point of view, urban planner, SMU professor, that appealed to me. But on the, on the ground level, people need things to eat. They need better stuff than the, the one raggedy grocery store that's down by the state fair or the nasty corner stores. So DART came up with this idea, can we use their three quarters of an acre to do something on? And they saw me at the pop-up market selling vegetables. The VP from DART or Community Fairs came across the street and said, I got this lot over here. What do you think? What can we do? So we spent several years trying to figure out what to do. And eventually I ran into one of my colleagues from SMU, Owen Lynch, who has been working on the urban agriculture ideas in schools for a while. And we came together and we figured out, okay, he started a seedling farm at MLK Center for three years and they create and sell, they sold almost 30,000 seedlings last year and giving them to churches and community gardens and all sorts of things. So now we're using the seedling farm to jumpstart the farm farm. And this is gonna be a nonprofit, sustainable working farm. It's not, it's not gonna be um, a destination. It's not an entertainment thing. It's gonna be sustainable. Ideally, we'll turn it over to the community, and then we'll build another one, and we'll build another one. We figure we have to get to five to start making an impact on what the grocery stores and what, what we can deliver to grocery stores and to restaurants. So, and DART has 200-plus properties that they have cleared or have some interest in doing something on, so there's probably another dozen that are suitable. We're going to take this as a template and try to recreate it all over and in the meantime train the locals on proper gardening techniques and they can uh, have a box grow box in the in the farm area too that they can adopt so it's essentially it's a, a couple of levels <coughs> try to think big over time to solve the the food uh, insecurity here but in the immediate term hire people show people how to grow grow stuff take it to a farmer's market give them another chance to create wealth to sell stuff. Let me ask and maybe maybe um, you can you can challenge some of the way that I think about about this type of stuff here because when I think about, you know, for example, urban farming, um, I think about something first of all that can have a lot of benefit from a placemaking perspective mm -hmm. um, and and a community cohesive perspective. Um, I think of it as something that can be a source of of community character and and some some training and jobs. Um, I don't think of it as something that that can be scaled to a level that it's going to uh, to fundamentally impact, you know, the, the sort of food systems on a big scale. Um, but uh, you've you've obviously looked at a model. Tell me tell me kind of how you do you think of this as being something that's that's really meant to scale up as as a food security thing, or is this something that's more kind of a neighborhood scale and neighborhood cohesion strategy and might might provide some good food for a small numbers of people. In the most ideal sense, the studies we've seen from John Hopkins and a bunch of other places, you can scale. Mm -hmm. 
what hasn't what hasn't happened or what they were using as models is community gardens mm-hmm. where you have individuals working on little plots we're not talking about that okay now we will help community gardens we will help people with these grow boxes which are two by two by four foot tall okay that they can grow their own food in or sell from but we're talking about actually a working farm okay that you grow 30 40,000 pounds of produce a year you turn the turn the plants four or five times and it's sustainable it pays for itself you know we're putting in a, a professional drip irrigation system we have texas a&m agrilife helping us with constructing the rows we're going to have a greenhouse we already have containers for washing and for an office so this is this is going to be a farm this is going to be a little baby iowa in the okay. middle of the community now are we interested in the community being part of it absolutely and the where it is it's really embedded in the community so what we're trying to do is turn it over to the community the person who's the master gardener is from the community as well so he's a contractor to us and hopefully we'll do more yeah it does it create a million jobs no but what it does what you said is it's a catalyst and when you bring something nice to a neighborhood that hasn't had anything nice it changes people's opinions i mean you put a sculpture in a vacant lot People start feeling differently about their own environment. This is what that's going to do. Plus, we're going to teach them to farm. We're going to teach them to grow stuff. We're going to teach them the skill of selling stuff at a market and how to make change and how to do marketing. So we're going to, part of my entrepreneurial thing, this is going to have an aspect of that. I'm thinking, I don't know if you're familiar with this project called Growing Power in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I've um, heard of it. Yeah, my um, my ex-wife was, was into... Um, a lot of these kind of, uh, you know, strategies to, to think of, of what we might call urban agriculture. And that was a, a place that uh, she had done some training there. And it, it was in this area that was kind of very disinvested, a high poverty neighborhood. And it was certainly a big a- anchor there, but it was also a place you could go in and you could buy ultra fresh uh, you know, fruits and vegetables, and I don't think fruits, but vegetables and eggs and, and things like that. And so it supported a store and it really redefined the character of this neighborhood and this very segregated city um, of, of Milwaukee. So um, I think that, that we saw that that was, that was very powerful. One book that I would encourage you to, to check out if, if you haven't yet, and one resource is called Agrarian Urbanism um, by Andres Duany. Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. And one of the, and he, at one point, the first CNU I went to, the first Congress for the New Urbanism National Conference I went to in Madison, Wisconsin, gosh, it's, I've been to the last nine, so I guess this was about, about nine years ago or something like that. Um, he had really thought that he'd be focused on, on that issue. One of the things that, and he, he, there wasn't a lot of follow-up with that, but one of the things that, that this book really talked about that I think is going to be important is um, kind of this new urbanist idea of the transect and how that relates to it. And uh, the, the idea for, for some of our listeners who might not know of it is of the transect is that you have to plan and think about a wilderness area different than a rural area, different than a suburban area, different than an urban core, and have different sets of rules and guidelines for, for each. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's an interesting guideline because there's sometimes people who, who say, you know, let's take everything in, in Detroit that, that isn't developed and make it into a giant farm. 
Um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's a way to grow food in downtown Dallas. There's a way to grow food in, in rural East Texas. And there's a whole spectrum in between, in between that, can, that can help to support placemaking and so forth. Well, and you also, just like with the workforce, you want a diverse environment economically. You want other businesses there. You don't want to just turn everything into a farm. There are other talents that could be harnessed. There are other things people could do and want to do. So it's it's more being opportunistic on a kind of the right fit in the right space and not assume everything should be an urban farm or garden. Right. Um, I agree with you 100%. It's, in, again, intentional, kind of incremental. Can we build five more farms or four more farms? We don't know. But we've got to see what happens with this one. So stay tuned. We'll see. We're excited. <clears throat> There's a lot about sustainability in the things that you do. Uh, I, I thought it was important. I saw on your... Uh, forward planning website where it talks about, you know, in order to continue to be able to help, you have to have a business that's sustainable. And the idea behind, because a lot of times, you know, we talk about, you know, nonprofits and donations, but whenever you have these businesses, that is in a, its own sense, it's self-sustainable. It's an engine versus just the gasoline for the car that continually has to be filled up. Do you have any thoughts on just sustainability in general, the importance of it, ways to implement it, thoughts behind it. Yeah, so what I'm teaching my students, I often have them create their own little business or teams of own little business. Always now, there's a sense of that revenue stream is that what shifted in the last 10 years. It used to be money-making, the free market stayed in one side, nonprofit stayed in the other, never came together. Now you have the social enterprise, the Tom Shoe example, where it's a for-profit, makes very good living, but he gives away a portion of it to, to do good. And I think I like that model. I mean, capitalism has its issues with equity and all of that. But if we're going to do it, you're much better off having a business plan that's sustainable so you can do good work and make an impact. I'm not saying you're going to you know, sell your business and make millions. What I'm saying is create a decent business and figure out what percentage of that you can do good with. Or if it's a do-good business, make sure you've got a revenue stream so you're not always wasting your time begging. Because so much of our intellectual capital in these nonprofits with a passion and all these good people, they spend most of their time begging, essentially. If you could harness that to do more good and have a, you know, sell T-shirts. I mean, Bonton is a great example, Bonton Farms. It's a destination. It is a farm, but it's really not a big working farm. But they have a lot of other things that they do to sustain what they're doing. And they are essentially sustainable. They brought attention to the community, and other thing, good things have happened because they're there. If they weren't there, a lot of those things wouldn't happen. So I think being having business skills, having kind of that entrepreneurial uh, adaptability, that flexibility, that uh, ability to see opportunity and seize it and make a good living doing that while you're trying to solve yeah. problems. There's nothing, in fact, that's the preferred model now because there's so many, so much of our governments around the world have cut back. So to fill the gap, social entrepreneurship has come in to fill in those social services that after World War II, up until the early 70s, the governments were doing a lot of that support, including ours. Well, now, you know, we treat the government as the enemy and they have cut way back on the, the social safety net. So who's left? Right. The nonprofits, their own philanthropy can't do it completely. So you've got to come up with these business ideas that you sell, you know, you sell glasses and you give a pair away or 
something like that, where you take advantage of the market, you create a market, take advantage of a, a fairly well-off consumers to do some social good. I think that that's the model I very much support. We used to be in a different co-working space, and uh, on the, one of the walls it said, innovation is like breathing for a business. And it made me so mad because revenue oxygen. is, is like oxygen. oxygen. Revenue is oxygen yeah. for business. And you, like you mentioned, if you're a nonprofit, you still have to have money coming in, which means you're asking for money. Right. Um, you're absolutely right. You have to have re revenue is not a bad thing. And, and profits that are reinvested in the right way are, are a good thing. Um, that's what that's that's what we Right, That's you just don't sell go. ownership. You no. don't have equity, but you still have people who want to invest in what you're doing. You right. just put the money, as you said, back into the business and grow it some more and do some more good. Yeah. There's two segues I could take, but but I I, I like this one a little more because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. One of one of the things that I think is you know we we I give a lot of time thinking about how government needs to make investments more incrementally if it wants to be effective. That that it needs to do things much more on the neighborhood scale, you know, rather than spend $200,000 on a plan, it's like you would have been better off spending that $200,000 figuring out some things you could do for the neighborhood in the next three months and, 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 and doing it in some sense, maybe spend 50,000 of that planning. Um, so, but another thing that I think in, in this region that's, that even goes more unquestioned is philanthropic money. And the way that that is not used incrementally, generally, and the way that I, I, I don't feel like we have a culture that, that can say, you know, thank you so much for being so generous, but, you know, th this money could be really well used for this. These are some very basic neighborhood needs. Um, so you have a philanthropic community that will put things into some very high profile type of things, but, but not into the things that, that actually make a difference in, in a lot of people's daily lives. I mean, I would like to see, you know, some of this money just go to one block in South Dallas and help to, to maybe, you know, humanize it and narrow it and, and, and show if you gave it to people, just as one of, of many examples. Um, do you have, do you have thoughts on this? You know, you, you worked for, um, you know, FCE, which, which certainly was able to do a lot of this, where, where they were able to, to, to come in and do fine-grained things and had people who did that. I'd like to see that more in the culture of Dallas, which has one of the most thriving philanthropic communities in the United States. Yeah, I think the, the, we have had a problem with kind of the, the good old boy network in philanthropy, too, not just in business, because they get used to the same people coming to the same table all the time and people get comfortable with that. We haven't had, to your point, any innovation in the philanthropy space in a long time. And Communities Foundation is trying now, trying to do some new things with the food deserts and things like that. But for years and years and years, it's been the you know, same old families donating to the same old causes that they like. And if you don't have people that you know in these underinvested communities to come up and schmooze the families and get to know them and play golf with them, then they're not going to be in that circuit. So there's kind of a philanthropy circuit that you kind of get into and show, you know, bring them over to your gallery or bring them over to your jewelry store that you're buying jewelry from Guatemala or something. Right. If you don't have any social contact to the communities that could, to your point, could use the block redone, that disconnect is, is pretty profound. Now, 
FCE and others have done a good job of trying to connect that and showing them what they could do. But we need a lot more of that. We need a lot more engagement of the philanthropy community to see what really needs to be done as opposed to their favorite, you know, kind of golf charities or whatever. Well, it, it, and it, it helps with, with FCE in the case of, of Don Williams, who, who really runs the organization, who is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people who would be on the ground the way that, that he's been who are, who are running something like that. Well, and to his credit, too, everybody thinks he's got something, some personal, you know, financial interest in all these things. He's not getting anything out of this. In fact, he's spending money hand over fist in some cases to do these supported things. So he's, he's gotten a tough rap in some cases you know the community is very suspicious why would this you know successful business person want to spend all his time and money down here what's it in it for him people don't necessarily understand that and it's purely altruism right it's pure altruism and more there should be more philanthropy activists like him than there are well, and you know things like things like you know I've I've heard about him doing things like coaching little league and and, and things like that, um, and from what I've heard, he seems to overall have have gained people's trust. But you know I could I could see how he would have been received with cynicism until it was you know maybe a couple decades into it where it's like well he's not he's not getting rich off us so so right. he must have he must have something else. But I do, you know, I do wonder, it's, it's a little bit, I think sometimes that it, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the things, if you look at um, uh, death and life of, of great American cities, which anyone who listens to this podcast is probably going to be sick of me talking about <laughs> Jane Jacobs' masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the things that she talked about was, you know, you had it, it, some kind of, you had some ideas that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And when people are challenged on it, it's like, <clears throat> I know this happened to be where you had Lincoln Center and they were concentrating all of the um, all of the major cultural assets into one place rather than having them around the city. And when people said, well, why are we doing it this way? It's like, well, that's the only way the philanthropists will, will give money. And she's like, well, maybe the philanthropists have been listening to the experts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if, if everybody's saying, you know, this is good planning, and you go to a philanthropist and, and you say, well, you know, we'd like to get money for the, uh, you know, this to, for this big cultural institution. They're going to say, well, if I'm going to do this, I want this to be planned well so it works. And I, I sometimes wonder if there's cases where um, the planning community might need to, uh, to kind of say something and say, we think that this, this is not the best investment to be made. Um, you know, I see a lot of things here in downtown Dallas that I think the most conspicuous being City Hall Plaza, where we've had a lot of money going to, to parks downtown, um, at least one of which is, is so far working very well. But it's like, what about why isn't this going to City Hall Plaza? And you get this sneaking suspicion that nobody uh, there's not enough experts saying this is something that should be the starting point. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you fruit. look at other cities, their planning department are actively engaged. They're helping people write plans. They're working with builders. They're working with developers. We basically have a rubber stamp. And yeah. there's very few people in the planning department. When I wrote my dissertation, I interviewed uh, Teresa O'Donnell, who was a, a real planner. And she they got rid of her. And there really isn't any active engagement by the planning department here there's economic development there's other 
departments, but the planning department is nowhere to be seen, really. Tulsa, Seattle, New Orleans, other cities have much better planning departments that are engaged and plugged into the, into actually hands-on. Here, they're very standoffish, and it's mostly a critique role rather than a, a teaching role, if you will. My perspective, at least from talking to people and seeing the department, is that it's a lot better than it was a couple of years ago. I think they have they have a much much better staff, but it may not be the the level of um, th that may not be showing as much on, on the neighborhood scale. I do think certainly that that a lot of the city resources need to be reallocated for for you know planning staff and other resources um, to to think a very to work on a very fine grain level. I mean, the fact that you have very high profile neighborhoods that essentially have no representation um, in, in, uh, in, in any of this, they're kind of on their own, even when they're, you know, where, where you have events being planned. Um, I talked about this in the last podcast, so again, I might be a broken record, but in my neighborhood in Bishop Arts, you know, we really could use someone who's a Main Street manager. We really could use help with events. We really could use... Um, public space activation. You've got people working a business for 60 hours a week who are expected to, to run a wine walk. Um, and they're doing very successful, but, but you know, they need, they need a lot more help than they're getting on a lot of different levels um, and, and a lot of, uh, and, and a lot of fine grained things. So um, yeah, I think, I think that, that a lot of your points are, are well taken. Um, so uh you, you've you've got a lot of different projects that we were um, that we were looking at um, in terms of, of helping to to build housing and, and entrepreneurial support and other things. Um, tell me one more thing that that you're focused on right now, either through in neighborhoods or um, through your academic teachings and so forth that that you'd like to share with us. I think SMU, to their credit, has recognized, and, and it, I think it's a trend around the country to, to put in what they call a curriculum of engaged learning mm -hmm. and that means getting your students out of the classroom and into the um in the into the neighborhood my smart watch is trying to take over my arm sorry <laughs> that's okay Bye. um and i think particularly where you have some of the juxtaposition that we do in in smu where you have some very uh, bright privileged and not bad way privileged but kids who've come out of wouldn't have gone to south dallas on purpose mm -hmm. um they are encouraging the, the the my leadership is encouraging me to do this engaged learning and like i said earlier we've already brought a team down to see the community and talk to the the garden and see the farm and they're very excited and they're you know giggling all the way back because it's such a wonderful experience so i think for me bringing those communities together and finding out realistic ways for them to help each other, I think that's that's a lot of fun. And if, you know, if that's part of my curriculum. I so much the better. So it, I will really inculcate it into my my students. I was just talking today to a prospective student that my department chair, Dr. Dewey, brought me in to talk to her, and it was about my class of social engagement and uh, social entrepreneurship. And she really was interested in nonprofit management. Um, so I talked a lot about the leeway that I have to, to engage kids any way I can into the, these community projects and, and uh, companies. 
This really leads into a great last question. I know you got to get out of here soon. Um, but I have, I think there's a lot of questions from young people. And, and as you're talking about writing about, um, even as you get older and you have experience in going back into academia and getting those advanced degrees, um, obviously everyone can't get an advanced degree. Um, you, you'd spent a few years before you got your master's and then another few years before you got your doctorate. I would just love to hear your opinion on when you recommend people do go for that advanced degree, who should and who shouldn't, and just kind of, obviously, you know, you're a professor and you teach, um, but what would you, what's kind of your general recommendations of like, this is when you know you should go back and get your advanced degree just in your own, in your own words. Yeah. And I, I, that's a great question. I think what I got my, uh, PhD when I started in my forties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what made me th- do that is I was thinking that maybe there was some other thing I wanted to do. I was fairly unfulfilled with this, you know, high powered job that was pretty, pretty ugly in terms of what you did. So education and training, it doesn't necessarily have to be advanced degree. It could be a certification, it could be learning a new skill is that if you're always curious and you're always learning, taking something, learning something from what you're doing, you can advance yourself. You can move yourself forward. With me, because I knew I was going to be in business, I got my MBA almost immediately because I know if you're going to succeed in business, that's almost uh, a stamp. PhDs are better for either researchers or if you're going to teach. If you you think you want to teach, a PhD will help open doors. And quite frankly, it opened doors in the communities that I'm working in. I come in, you know, Dr. Earl, and they Assume I know something. <laughs> so it was a beautiful uh, entree that wouldn't necessarily wasn't necessarily authentic in the beginning. It turned out that way, but it's a good way to um, give yourself some comp- credibility and compete around you too in, in certain circumstances. The other thing, if if you do it at middle age and go back to school, there was every, most of them are night classes because these are all working cohorts. You got to spend three hours at night with. Nobody bothering you, focusing on whatever that topic was. It was pure heaven in the sense it was really extraordinary because, you know, we're used to getting buzzed and beeped. And if you're in a you know, busy company, you're bothered all the time, 7 by 24. Having that moment of bliss where you're only worried about that one topic was really quite rewarding. And, and in my opinion, I'm a much better student as an older person than I was in undergrad. I hardly remember my undergrad days. I'm only thankful that there was no internet then. I'd probably be in jail by now. <laughs> but um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think you guys are really uh, on a great trajectory. I think what you're trying to do, what you're trying, what you think about, how you're trying to engage the public-private discussion, I think is vital. And it's going to get only more necessary as we go forward. So my advice is to keep up the good work. Thank you, Dork, and we'll give you the same advice. How's that? Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I've never called you Doctor before. Thank no, you, Doctor. I have not. Okay, well, uh, that's a wrap, and we uh, appreciate you coming over to our Ashen Lime Global Headquarters and having a conversation with us.